Welcome to Chris Talk, a podcast from the Center for Research on Security Practices at Wilfrid Laurier University. I'm Avery Moore-Kloss. On this podcast, we dive into the research being done by CRISP members and their colleagues around the world. And today, we've really taken around the world to heart. Our guests for this episode come from the UK and Australia, with CRISP executive producers Deborah Langan and Carrie Sanders here in Canada. The reason we book guests from across the planet is because we are able to speak to some of the foremost researchers on the topic of diversity in policing. Before we hop into this one, I want to get really clear about what we mean by diversity in policing. We focus this discussion largely on women in policing, or rather how police services are faring when it comes to number of male versus female officers at all ranks. While our guests do venture into discussion about racial and socioeconomic diversity, largely what we're talking about here is women in the ranks. Our guests today also wanted to be really clear about what they mean by diversity. And for that, I'm going to introduce you to our first guest. Or, you know what, I'll let her introduce herself. My name is uh, Marissa Silvestri, and I'm a reader in criminology at the University of Kent. With regard to my research, I have had sort of the last sort of 25 to 30 years, I can never keep track of doing research around policing and gender issues. So my PhD many, many years ago was the first study that was undertaken on senior women in policing in the UK. So that was lovely. And I think that ever since then, I've just built on my research. But I I do wear another hat, which is a gender crime and criminal justice hat. So I think I would say that gender are the lenses that I wear, but they really inform the whole criminal justice system with a particular interest in gender and policing, both masculinities actually and femininities, and how that plays out for both citizens and officers. We are leading with Marissa today because she was really clear about what she means by diversity. So here goes. But I think it's really, really important at the outset here that we don't confuse and compound um, diversity with equality. They are very, very, very different things. They are very, very different beasts. And diversity uh, is something that forces, uh, fo- forces us to focus on counting things and to count on the numerics. So how many diverse people do we have in policing? And whilst I, you know, completely um, call for this counting exercise, it's a really important way to map where we are. Honestly, it, it masks a whole host of inequalities within and between groups. And if we keep focusing on simply numbers, which diversity forces us to do, it enables police organisations and actually any organisation to claim success. And we'll talk about those inequalities as we go along. But first, I thought we could key into why diversity matters in policing. It's a question we pose to all four of our guests today, but I'm going to have Marissa start us off. Marissa says diversity affects all organizations, including higher education. It matters to us all. But when it comes to policing, she says she thinks it's about state authority. It's about power. It's about protection. And I don't really think we can underestimate the power that the police have as gatekeepers. And I sometimes think because as criminologists and as observers of criminal justice, we tend to focus on the end point in terms of prison. But actually, we forget the really powerful impact that police officers have in opening that gate, either to protect 
potential victims or actually to criminalise um, potential suspects who offend. So they really have enormous power. So I think diversity, therefore, really matters when it comes to thinking about ideas of legitimacy in policing. I mean, often when we think about diversity, I think that the business case is what's put forward, particularly by the private sector. So if you read a lot of literature around, you know, equalities in organisation, they focus on the need to have good diversity because it brings different views to an organisation. It brings different styles to the table and it kind of helps to aid transformation, particularly for organisations that need to transform themselves. We posed this same question to Tim Prenzler. We spoke to Tim from his home office in Australia. My name's uh, Tim Prenzler. I'm a professor of criminology uh, in the School of Law and Society at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia. I'm interested in crime prevention and corruption prevention. There's very strong evidence that, particularly in terms of gender diversity, uh, improving the percentage of female officers will greatly improve the quality of police services. So we know that there's this very long history of corruption and abuse of power by police in basically every country in the world, and that's been closely associated with the male nomination of police departments. And so breaking that nexus between um, macho culture, male domination and corruption and excessive force is, is a really key mechanism to improve police community relations and generate more effective um, police forces around the world that are more responsive to the communities they serve. Um, And so the evidence is pretty clear on this, that if women attract much lower rates of complaints than male officers. For this episode, we also spoke to a pair of researchers with extensive experience in researching women in policing. And since they do so much work together, we also interviewed them together. I'm Jennifer Brown. I have been researching women in policing for more years than I care to say. It began when I actually worked for a police force in Hampshire. I am currently a visiting professor in the Mannheim Centre at the London School of Economics, and I am continuing my collaboration with, with Jenny Fleming, and we hope we'll be able to tell you a little bit about our work in this broadcast. Okay, my name is Jenny Fleming. Um, I am the uh, Professor of Criminology at the University of Southampton. I would probably describe myself as a policing scholar more generally. So, yes, I do uh, police women, linking it quite uh, strongly with leadership and professionalism. I think I think in public service generally diversity matters, Um And we talk about it on that first broader sense. We talk about that in terms of reflecting the community you serve. So I think that is the first broad answer. Um, We know, or criminologists and psychologists, you know, we talk about legitimacy. And the theory of that is essentially that we are more likely to comply. We're more likely to cooperate. We're more likely to obey if we feel um, that those people who are asking us to comply and obey can be trusted and we have confidence in them. And so I think if the those authorities, when they reflect your community in very strong ways, whether it be gender, whether it be ethnic, uh, disability, whatever, 
that's really important. So I think diversity matters because where you've got stronger representation of difference or different communities or different peoples in any organisation, it brings greater knowledge of all things different. That in policing, where you're connecting all the time to different people, different situations, that knowledge is absolutely important for successful connections and understandings, I think. What Jenny says here directly connects to something Marissa Silvestri thinks a lot about. She says diversity is about social justice. It's absolutely consistent, I think, with the principles of a democratic society that those who are in power should actually represent the community that they police. I think we all know that, uh, well, we all know it's a, it's a truth that, you know, some groups, particularly non-white groups, are disproportionately policed. And we also know that there's a lack of protection afforded to uh, particularly women and those who experience gendered forms of victimisation. Now, if the reality is that our police workforce is in the hands, hearts and minds of a predominantly white male workforce, that will have implications in how they undertake their role undeniably. For me, I think in order to give legitimacy a chance, we need to have diversity from the outset. So those in power uh, need to share power with all of us in order for us to have confidence in that state's authority. Whereas before we had sort of external changes by law, so policing were forced to respond to those. I think now what we have are changes coming from within the police service themselves. So the last sort of particularly 10 years and the kind of rapid development of diversity within policing and kind of diversity discourses has come from within the police in an attempt to really uh, diversify and to change its role, to rethink its positioning. And, and again, just their incredibly poor behaviour and ongoing sort of high profile scandals of corruption and poor behaviour and cultures of misogyny. So those changes now are coming from within rather than outside. And in some ways that might create a, a greater um, success perhaps in the future. It's no secret that police services across the planet struggle with achieving meaningful diversity. There are many challenges to both recruiting diverse applicants and seeing those successful applicants rise in ranks to leadership positions. Tim Prenzler from the University of Gold Coast says that the rate at which women apply to police jobs is traditionally very low. Even if you remove structural discrimination like inappropriate physical tests for entry, gendered language and recruitment processes, and all-male selection panels. There's still often a problem with disproportionately low application rates. So it would seem that if you remove all those barriers and you open up policing to women, for example, probably about one-third of applicants will be female and they will be recruited based on merit. If you have policies where you strongly encourage women to apply, such as recruitment strategies like targeted advertising, um, where you use social media or you go to schools, that kind of thing, and say, we want women, we're encouraging women, and where you perhaps um, profile female officers, you, you might get an increase in applications. But it's still a long way from... 50%. Uh, so I think the main obstacle seems to be getting application rates up when the system itself is supportive and non-discriminatory. So why are women not applying? Largely, Tim says it's an internal culture problem or a perceived internal culture problem. 
One of the big obstacles is changing the informal culture. Um, so sexist jokes and sexist language and uh, informal discrimination, particularly by uh, supervisors in rostering and training and ex- opportunities and opportunities to work at a higher level or, or um, move into specialist areas. So there needs to be a lot of a lot of training of uh, supervisors, particularly uh, when it comes to things like rosters and general management of, of staff aspirations. There are negatives like basically, as I've indicated, lack of encouragement, uh, lack of role models, women feeling isolated. Uh, there is some research um, that shows that women possibly contemplating joining the police feel that they won't be welcome. There are also persistent stereotypes that um, policing is, is a dangerous and physically demanding job. And there are also persistent stereotypes that males are more genetically suited to police work than, than females. So there are these inhibiting factors out there in the community that stop women applying to join the police for sure. Marissa Silvestri says beyond women not feeling welcome, women and minorities are also very aware of very public cases of police misconduct in the news. Why would anyone want to join the police given the ongoing kind of hideous and scandalous high profile cases of their poor practice. So it will always be an impediment to recruitment. So, you know, they often talk about, you know, why, you know, we have all these recruitment strategies. Why can't we get the numbers of of black and minority ethnic officers up? Why can't we get women to stay? Well, it's pretty obvious. I mean, lots of people simply don't want to join the police anymore. I mean, there'll be these heinous cases that I talk about might galvanize some to join and make a difference. But generally, it will deter a lot of people from joining. I mean, who wants to be part of this kind of failing organisation with such shameful behaviour? Jennifer Brown from the London School of Economics says at the same time, in the UK at least, the drive for attracting more female officers has actually waned in recent years. In 2010, there were 25% women. Now there are 32%. In terms of uh, ethnic minority officers, In 2010, there were 4.5% and there are now 9.5%. Although I would say these still aren't reflective of the proportion in the populations. We have 14% BAME population in England and Wales and 51% women. So although the numbers are improving, we aren't at parity. The second probably big development is what we've seen is a lot an oscillation in the energy of promoting equal opportunities policies. I think in the preceding decade, there was some energy in developing policies and trying to implement them. In 2010, we had the introduction of a huge austerity measured government whereby numbers in policing were dramatically reduced. They were under huge pressure. And our colleague, Wendy Laverick, has been looking at this in particular and actually shown some pushback in terms of the way in which equality policies, especially with respect to gender issues, has actually taken a back seat. So where progress was being made in terms of getting women into a wider range of policing specialism and into rank, 
we've seen a bit of um, a retrograde commitment, really. And the certainly with gender issues, it's very much taken a back seat. Jennifer says that one of the problems here is that with austerity measures also comes a loss of space and interest in creative solutions to solve diversity issues. Because they were so recharged to deliver policing service with reduced numbers. And that really concentrated the mind and narrowed their focus so that things that they may have tried experimentally or innovatively really got sidelined by this pressure to manage under these conditions of austerity. Now, Jennifer says it's been left to interest groups like the Black Police Association, the British Association of Women Police, and Senior Women in Policing to keep diversity issues on the agenda. And while present governments have promised to restore the number of officers lost during the austerity years, it's still unclear how that will play out in actually rejuvenating a renewed interest in recruiting in a diverse way. But there's a complication to this discussion about recruiting when it comes to women. Research in this area shows that police services have been getting better at recruiting women. The bigger problem now is keeping women on the force. Thinking about really what these impediments are, I think the first thing to say is in the British policing model, you enter as a constable, you work your way through the rank structure, and if you're successful, you will succeed in in getting senior rank. And we call this a traditional career pathway. But it assumes full-time working and no breaks in employment. I think it's important to stop here and get really clear on how this path from constable to a leadership position works in most police models. And Jennifer has a brilliant way to illustrate this. We'll call it the policing Christmas tree. If you imagine a Christmas tree, which is a rather elongated triangle. The base of our Christmas tree is the constable rank, which is 70% of the officer establishment. As you progress up the Christmas tree, your sergeant rank, your inspector level rank, your superintending rank, and your chief officer rank. So the star at the top of the tree is the chief constable, and we have one. The bottom of the tree is our constables, of which you are the 70%. So the 70% are not going to be able to progress all the way up to the top because the slots are limited and are more limited the higher up you go. And in fact, they have stripped out a good proportion of the superintending ranks and their span of control has become much larger and the number of people occupying those ranks smaller. So the opportunities to progress through the rank structure is really limited. One of the major problems women have in progressing up the Christmas tree towards that star is something Jennifer hinted at before, time. If you're going to make those transitions. And of course, for women who wish to have families, they take career breaks, maternity breaks, And that breaks their traditional trajectory. That then holds them back in two different ways. One, because they don't get the experience in the rank sufficiently, and they're always paying catch-up. And two, they may not get the opportunity to have the 
diversity of portfolio of experiences. So when you go for your promotion, you're finding yourself at a disadvantage because you haven't got an unbroken career pathway and you haven't perhaps had the same opportunity to diversify your portfolio so that you're offering a limited, more limited range of experience. Tim Prenzler says often this is where police forces also lose the women officers they've spent so much time trying to recruit. This is a simplification, but I think often what happens is women come into policing in their early 20s and then sort of by by their mid to late 20s, then they start having children. And then um, after they have their first child, they might go back to work, but then they think they want to have their second child. And then they think, oh, it's too difficult to go back to work. So they resign and take on full, full-time caring, or they try to juggle part-time work. What Tim and Jennifer are saying is that women get stuck at those bottom branches of the Christmas tree because they want to start families. And raising that family means they can't put in as much time as their male counterparts who are climbing the Christmas tree in their absence. And with a lack of part-time and flexible options in police work, it becomes an untenable career path for many women. But still, at all levels of the Christmas tree, women have a harder time climbing towards that star at the top. And Jenny Fleming says there's more research to be done about why that is and why there's such a lack of female leaders rising to top levels. By the time women are sort of coming up the ranks, if you're lucky, very few of them are getting past the chief inspector um, role, forward to superintendent and then forward to ACC. Increasingly, that is the case. So I think a lot of research does need to be done now, particularly in the UK, where there's an awful lot of chief constable vacancies and they're being left vacant for a very long time. And I suspect research would give us some indication that women are getting more opportunities now to get into those. But there is still not that pool of people to choose from, I suspect. And and that's, that's one of the issues. And again, straight back to what we were just saying before, those whole organizational traditions about working, recruitment practices, you know, what you need to be a leader. Jenny says in the UK, they've seen a pretty recent example of what she's talking about here. I was on the panel for a chief constable for um, Hampshire a few years ago. And in fact, in the end, there was only two applicants, the existing deputy chief constable, who was a man, and a female officer who was then um, a deputy chief constable or assistant chief constable from another force. And, you know, they were, they were both, you know, very good both very good, but she was, in my mind, perhaps, you know, biased, um, better. And uh, I was surrounded by men, mainly, and the resistance to appointing her was really interesting around, well, she doesn't even live here, neither does your existing DCC. Oh, yes, but she's got a family. And that All the things that we, you know, you can't believe still actually come up in conversation absolutely did. Uh, And that's like we're talking a few years ago. Fortunately, she got the job, but, you know, not without some resistance. And I suspect it was almost subconscious resistance. So that whole organisational traditional culture about who should be leading, I think it is relevant for the leadership as well. 
Marissa Silvestri agrees. She says if it doesn't stop women from applying in the first place, it affects their growth in the organization later. The fact that it's just a really difficult career to have, particularly as a woman, if you want to have a life outside of work. So if you, for example, know that you'd like to have children or a family, it's a very, very difficult occupation to manage that. I mean, most occupations are very difficult for women who want to have family and good work-life balance, but particularly policing, given its shift nature, work of pattern, particular demands. So, you know, that kind of rigid kind of career structure that exists in policing, I think also uh, is a leading impediment to why um, we can't simply diversify policing. For Marissa, there's something else at play here too, what she calls the, quote, masculinized culture of leadership that's seen in many police services across the planet. So they often do this work, this very clever kind of equalities work in the background. But they also, from the women that I've spoken to in the past, you know, a lot of them do subscribe to the cultures of leadership. There's very masculinized cultures of leadership because they argued that the game is worth playing for without changing the parameters, actually. So the, 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 this kind of hyper-masculinized police role that, that I, I try to dismantle in my work and call for something else, actually, lots of the women I speak to uh, are actively involved engaging, reinforcing, because they think it's part of, they wish to be part of that game. It's still a really kind of terrific job to be involved in, even though they experience often um, some great discrimination over the course of their careers. And it's only sometimes through interviewing these women that you get a sense in which they can take the time to reflect over um, their lives and and, and recognise things for what they really were. So to see the missed promotions actually as a culture of discrimination, often you accept lots of things that happen to you on the way and you don't realise what's going on here. And I think the senior women have kind of very, a very clued up on this. And I, I just get this, this uh, feeling that they underdo equality work very quietly and in the background, but kind of very chipping away whilst also simultaneously taking part in what they believe to be a really rewarding career if not very difficult. And that I realised that, you know, masculinity at the top of policing is really multifaceted. So masculinity, sorry, within the police is hugely multifaceted and a managerial masculinity is very different to that form of masculinity that's expressed at the lower ranks. But it's there and there's no doubt that women experience this force, but it's a different kind. It's a much more competitive form of masculinity, a culture of presenteeism, for example, which is I was talking about time. It's expressed in different ways to be tough and forceful and decisive. These are different forms of culture, different forms of masculinity, although equally gendered. So um, culture for me, I think, remains really powerful. It remains a really powerful way to subvert policy. And it's a really powerful way to sort of maintain, I think, inequality. And um, yeah, and and I I think when I think about occupational culture, I mentioned it earlier, but I do think there is an increasing culture within policing of uh, diversity fatigue. I think um, that's increasingly growing at all levels of being just sort of, you know, quite fed up of um, talking about difference and diversity. And so that sparks another conversation. If women can successfully take that top spot, the star on the Christmas tree, how are they treated and perceived in an occupation led by, as Marissa Silvestri said, a masculinized culture of leadership? Jennifer Brown says one of the challenges is that much of police leadership is still transactional. Still very 
can do rather than the transformational leadership which traditionally we find uh, are much more likely to be women's style of leadership. So when you're going for promotion, the idea that the promotion boards, which are stacked usually with male officers, I have to say, who are going to promote in their own image and likeness, then they're going to respond more positively to someone who has this can-do approach rather than what they see perhaps as a, a weaker leadership style. There are still silos of very male-dominated areas of policing, and those are things like firearms, dog handling, roads policing, public order policing, where there is, again, this highly focused, can-do, macho element to it that uh, women do find very difficult to break into, often because they may well be the first or one of very few, and they're trying to make their way. And Frances Heisenson has a nice phrase for this, which is, they are seen, if successful, as a case of exceptionalism. In other words, oh, well, we surprise that you as a woman can do well, but we don't then assume all women can do this. If the woman doesn't do so well, it's a class action. Jennifer says beyond that, even to keep those, quote, cases of exceptionalism, holding on to that top role is difficult because of a culture of bullying. We still have examples from our own research of bullying and coercive controlling behavior of senior women who find themselves in often a singular minority at very senior level. And we also have a relatively new governance arrangement whereby there is a, an elected police and crime commissioner. And we've had several examples, two particularly I can call to mind, where a woman chief constable has been subject to the most appalling behaviour by these police and crime commissioners, so much so that they have both felt obliged, one to retire early, and one to move on to another appointment. So those relationships can actually work against women wishing to put themselves into those very difficult working relationships. Tim Prenzler says he's seen similar behaviour targeted at women in high-ranking roles in Australia as well. Certainly in Australia, the first female police commissioner that we had in Victoria, Christine Nixon, She faced a major campaign against her from the police union and um, other senior officers and some rank-and-file officers. And uh, I think part of the problem for her is that she was brought in from the outside. um, But being a female and an outsider was like a double jeopardy situation for her. And, yeah, so one of the problems she had in advancing a major reform agenda that she had was uh, very strong resistance, quite overt opposition from groups within the police and associated groups outside, such as the police union. How women are brought into a policing organization and at what level is also something our guests had a lot to say about. For many years, two of the foremost solutions pitched to help increase diversity among ranks were called direct entry and fast track. 
Direct entry saw women from other industries placed into senior positions like sergeant and inspector without ever putting in time as a constable. Whereas fast track saw women start at the constable level and then moved up to senior positions quickly. For example, in the UK, it was a three-year track. Think of Jennifer Brown's Christmas tree analogy. Instead of starting women officers at the bottom branches, women with diverse work backgrounds are added to the service in the middle of the Christmas tree. Or they start at the bottom and jump branches quickly. In 2018, Marissa Silvestri says she wrote a speculative paper on direct entry, when it was still a rather novel idea. I talked about it in that paper as potentially a really disruptive tool because what it could do is it could actually, you know, rather than tinkering around the edges with equalities policy, here we have a policy that actually, for the first time, actually tries to shake up the core meaning of what it means to be a police officer. Time gets disrupted here because arguably you can join as an inspector or as a superintendent, as was the case. It's a really, really radical approach to changing the ideas and diversifying policing. So I did argue that could be a hugely disruptive uh, tool, not just in terms of embodied diversity, but in terms of bringing about a diversity of thought. It did bring a higher number of women into the force. Um, It argued that direct entrance did make a difference. So they were much more open and inclusive and empowering in style. They were more collaborative and less hierarchical. And they had this kind of transformational style about them. And they were willing to challenge ways and norms and ways of doing things. But of course, they undoubtedly suffer from issues around credibility and authority. And there's lots of examples there. Unfortunately, the studies by the College of Policing weren't gendered. But I think you can read between the lines there and make some kind of um, um, some really good um, summations there around the kind of problems around those credibility contests that might exist for particularly women who are already deemed to be not authoritative enough in leadership positions. So if you can get there as a direct entrant, of, a direct entrant, of course, your authority will be questioned. That trend of female leaders brought in through direct entry or fast track facing non-compliance from subordinates because of their pushback on organizational reform is something Jenny Fleming saw too. What you get then is the occupational culture sweeping in to kind of thwart and foil some of those efforts. Um, and then you get those those opportunities for existing dinosaurs, as we might say, men and women, who have who have traditional views about who should be in and who should be out and the way in which they need to come up through the ranks. Which means the program brought in to help ensure women were given leadership positions made it even harder for women to hold ranks at the top of the policing Christmas tree. They were being blocked and they were leaving because, the, you know, the potential or their expectations of the roles that they were told they could expect never really materialised. We do have a couple of really successful people um, in, on direct entry uh, still in the system, but direct entry is also on pause because essentially um, I, I would go so far as to say it was more or less blocked by senior, uh, probably male officers in the system. Here's Jennifer Brown. I mean, I would just emphasise that the rank and file discredit the direct entrant, partly because you haven't won your spurs 
So you haven't been through the rank structure. You don't know the rank and file experience. You haven't had that span of operational exposure. And so if you were put in charge of a public order event or a firearms operation, there's a loss of confidence that you know what you're doing and you can draw on your own experience. And, and the second element is the procedural injustice, as they see it, which is I've paid my dues, I've put my time in, and this often graduate drops in at senior rank, and my 15, 16 years counts for nothing, and my slot has been taken, and I've lost my opportunity for my promotion. So they see it as inherently unfair. And police officers, in my experience, have both direct and subtle ways of actually showing how they disapprove of a particular person. And I think in the army it was called dumb insolence. But they do have ways of subverting then the authority of their senior officer, given that it is a highly hierarchical, structured organization, that there's lots of ways you can undermine your, your senior. One of the changes being made, including in direct entry hires, is a move towards professionalization of police officers, something that's been happening for a few years in the UK and now is also being applied to hiring practices in Canada. It's a push to advance equity, diversity, and inclusion by increasing educational requirements and professionalization training. Jenny Fleming says that's where she wants to see more research done in the future. It is essentially the college driving a, a professional education qualification framework, but in fact is pushing recruitment of people with degrees. This goes right back to conversations that you may have with Tim, but with others who, who have dealt with corruption and misconduct, where they have felt that more educated people are more likely to lessen that kind of practice within the organisation. So on the same level, the college believes that more educated people will be more likely to introduce a sense of professionalism and therefore potentially a more equitable, a more diverse and inclusive workplace. Now, this is to be tested and probably not in my lifetime, but currently there are three ways to get into the um, police force in Britain and they all require you to get a degree or have a degree before you come in. And I think when Jenny and I talk to police officers, if you talk about this professionalisation agenda, they get very hurt and upset because they have an entirely different conception of what they understand being a professional is. Of course, they have done it without the preparatory work and the evaluative work. I'm sceptical myself as to whether it will succeed, because as one of my colleagues said, all they've done is to take police training schools and put them on campus, because these cohorts of young officers are often corralled into specialist courses and they're not intermingling with the student body. They often wear uniform. They're often called away from their classes because 
operational contingencies mean they're being paid as police officers and they need to be on duty. Jenny Fleming says when it comes to research, she has a long list of must-haves, but there's one in particular she wants to see the results of. I'm not going to be able to do this because I'll be old and dead probably, but I would like to be looking five to ten years down the track at the impact, if any, on the whole, what I would call an experiment of the professionalization program. I would like to see what one of the things that is so disappointing for me and for most policing scholars, I think, is the lack of evaluation that the organizations do themselves on new initiatives or anything at all for that matter. So they don't want us to do it, but they won't do it. And if they do do it, like, for example, the direct entry thing that they have me look at, you know, it's very, it's very basic. It's very KPMG, I would say. So in some ways, what I would really like to do is to be in and able to, because if you're going to evaluate, you've got to evaluate from the beginning, you've got to put in your markers, and you've got to be looking at it from the beginning. I'd love to have been able to see if there is going to be any difference to an organization where the culture is slightly more collegial, where it's more equitable, more diverse, and more inclusive. Uh, I suspect this is not the answer, but it would be very interesting to have a look at it. On Jennifer Brown's list of research must-haves beyond professionalization is the impact of new professional standards. I think ethics and policing. I think instilling a sense of professional ethical conduct in a way that's equivalent to the legal profession or the medical profession, which is your absolute DNA about the way you conduct your professional life. Now, I know there are rogue medics and there are rogue lawyers, but by and large, there is a strong ethical ethos. And again, for the police service, there is this whole informal ways and means of doing things, which in part, I think, lead to some dubious practices. It leads to a misplaced sense of loyalty that you don't actually report the misdeeds and the misdoings of your fellow officer. Um, There's a circling of the wagons when a police service is criticised and the sense in which they are defensive and protective of themselves. So for me, It's looking at the way in which we can really understand the personal moral stance of the socialization and the acculturation of why officers end up doing some of the things that they do, rather than preserving this really strong kind of professional ethic. For Tim Prenzler, he wants to see more studies on recruitment. I'd like to see some really strong experiments with uh, supportive recruitment policies where police departments make a really big effort to attract female applicants and support them through the application process with with um, pre-application classes, um, training in the physical tests, all, all that kind of thing, and, and see what the outcomes are uh, in five and ten years 
as well. My, my big interest in, is in recruitment, um, but I, I recognise that it's there's not a lot of value in bringing in large numbers of female officers if they then drop out because they have negative experiences on the job. But there are a lot of people doing research in the area of um, supportive policies. Um, and I think there's some pretty good uh, emerging best practice in, the, in that area. And for Marissa Silvestri, she wants a better foundation of understanding and definition in something that came up time and time again in our interviews for this episode, police culture. I, I love the opportunity to talk about culture. It's, for me, it's a really hugely under-theorized concept in policing, despite being perhaps one of the most familiar terms that even non-police scholars know. So for me, when we think about it in terms of gender, normally uh, police culture, it kind of gets subsumed and collapsed into referring to this kind of macho cult of masculinity. And, And somehow that equates to police culture. That cult of masculinity actually is focused on a very macho physical culture, so a culture of physicality which often associates with the lower ranks of policing. But that analysis of culture I found in my own research was applied to all women. And there I was when I was, you know, in my sort of late 20s and do my PhD, I was interested in women in leadership. And when they were talking about uh, policing, they weren't referring. For me, when I was trying to make sense of their narratives and when I talked to police uh, uh, leaders, they don't talk about the physical aspects of policing, you know, the kind of things, you know, you can't do it, you're not up to it. They were talking about a different kind of masculinity. But that kind of analysis of culture, I couldn't find it within the literature. A managerial masculinity is very different to that form of masculinity that's expressed at the lower ranks. But it's there and there's no doubt that women experience this force, but it's a different kind. It's a much more competitive form of masculinity. Culture for me, I think, remains really powerful. It remains a really powerful way to subvert policy and it's a really powerful way to sort of maintain, I think, inequality. I want a systematic analysis of women at all ranks in policing and uh, from entry to exit. That's what I'd really, I'd really like to know what makes them enter, what makes them stay and what makes them leave. So I think a, a really systematic mapping exercise, which really drills down into particularly career transition points is really significant. And we don't have that. I think better understanding of both the constraints and the enablers in women's lives. So, you know, what does work for those women who've made it? You know, what were the conditions of success? I think that's really important. I think it's really important that we have a better understanding of um, the kind of inequality regimes that exist within policing, those intersectional analyses, you know, black and minority women's experiences of policing, we know very, very little about. And it's just, you know, I'm fed up of myself saying that I must do this research. So this is something that's really, really uh, significant. And, you know, I I think what's really interesting is also I think we need to understand men's awareness and engagement with diversity issues you know we need to understand uh, to understand uh, how they engage with all of this and, and w- how they're experiencing these new non-gender neutral policies to kind of get a sense of how we might mobilize everyone in policing to, to work towards a much more diverse place i think they're they're the key things that i, w- I would like to see more research on Thank you for listening to Chris Talk. 
This podcast is a production of the Center for Research and Security Practices at Wilfrid Laurier University. Executive producers for this episode were Deborah Langan and Carrie Sanders. And we'd like to thank our incredible guests for sharing their work and resources with us. Marissa Silvestri is a reader in criminology at the University of Kent. Her research interests lie at the intersection of gender, crime, justice, policing, and organizational cultures. She is currently working on two books, Police Leadership Changing Landscapes and Police Leadership Critical Perspectives. Tim Prenzler is a professor of criminology in the School of Law and Society at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia. His research interests include crime and corruption prevention, police and security officer safety, security industry regulation, and gender equity in policing. Jennifer Brown is a visiting professor in the Mannheim Center at the London School of Economics. She's also a chartered forensic and chartered occupational psychologist. Her research interest is in police occupational culture, especially with reference to stress experienced by officers and diversity, particularly women's roles and coping strategies. And Jenny Fleming is a professor of criminology at the University of Southampton and is the co-director of the Institute of Criminal Justice Research at the University of Southampton. She is the editor-in-chief of Policing and Society, an international journal of research and policy. For the past 20 years, she's worked on a formal and informal basis with police agencies and associations in Australia, the United Kingdom, Scotland, Canada, the Netherlands, the United States, and New Zealand. For more information on CRISP, please find us online at crsp.online. We will be back soon with more research to uncover. I'm Avery Moorclough.